Thank you for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, San Raza. Before I start this interview, I would like to share with you that we recently started our crowdfunding campaign with the goal of reaching 20,000 euros so that we can continue with our independent and non-profit journalism in 2024. Journalism that is viewer funded and does not take any money from corporations or governments. If we reach our target by January 10th, we will be able to cover all of our costs associated with our journalism that include, for example, tax advising, insurance, website maintenance, post-production, video editing, translation, correction, voiceover, and many others. If you fail to reach this target, we will unfortunately have to scale back on our capacities. So if you're watching our videos regularly, make sure to participate by just donating two to three dollars or euros. And if all of 145,000 subscribers just donate that amount today, we will not only be able to achieve our crowdfunding target, but also be able to cover our operational costs for the next two to three years. Today, I'll be talking to Dimitri Skaris about Israel's war in Gaza and the war in Ukraine. Dimitri Raskaris is a journalist and a lawyer who specializes in class actions, human rights, and international law. In 2020, he ran for the Green Party leadership in Canada, finishing second. Dimitri, welcome back. Always a pleasure, Zane. Thank you for having me. I would like to begin this interview with Ukraine. Yesterday, Ukraine President Zelensky announced that he wants to mobilize an additional 500,000 people to join the army as the war with Russia enters its second year. This announcement comes at a time when Ukraine has suffered setbacks in terms of receiving military aid from both the U.S. and the EU. In the U.S. Congress, Republicans have blocked the $60 billion aid package on the condition that any additional money for Ukraine must be accompanied by a tightening of immigration rules. In the European Union, too, a $52 billion aid package for Ukraine didn't pass as it was vetoed by Hungary at a summit in Brussels. Firstly, where exactly do you think Zelensky will be able to draw up 500,000 additional troops from? And secondly, what does the U.S.-Europe stalemate mean for Ukraine's long-term outlook on the battlefield? This is a very interesting development, this 500,000 uh, uh, recruitment target. My understanding, and I believe this has been uh, disclosed by the Ukrainian press, is that this was a re request made by the Zaluzhny, uh, who, the general who leads the war effort uh, in Ukraine, uh, to Zelensky and that Zelensky was initially reluctant to give honor the request. It may be that he's now made a decision to do that. Um, it's important for people to understand that in the background, there is a severe schism between Zeluzhny and Zelensky. Um, and Zelensky, I think uh, all indications are there's been violence targeting people who are members of the regime or close to the regime. Um, there has been uh, there have been press uh, reports in the Ukrainian press of severe conflict between the two. There's suggestions that perhaps Zelensky fears that a coup d'état is coming, uh, and there are strong indications that people within his inner circle are very concerned about how in touch he is with reality. Um, so this may have been, and I can't prove this saying, but it may have been an attempt on the part of Zeluzhny to put pressure on Zelensky, uh, because. Uh, Trying to recruit an additional 500,000 people in Ukraine right now is an extraordinary difficult task. Uh, there have been videos appearing, which have been reported upon by the Western media, by the way, of uh, Ukrainian officials, uh, military personnel, forcibly apprehending people, men, uh, and conscripting them by force into the army, dragging them off the street, street, going to hotels, going to sporting events, gyms, and literally dragging them by force uh, uh, out of a civilian life and into a military one. The average age of the soldier now in the Ukrainian military is reportedly well over 40 years. 
it's very clear that the pool of uh, sort of military age men that Ukraine can draw upon, because remember, not only has there been a massive carnage on the battlefield, uh, but in addition, millions of Ukrainians fled the country uh, before Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian government was able to impede their exit from the country. And there's many, many military age men who no longer are within the grasp of the Ukrainian government. So uh, it's very, I think, uh, uh, wishful thinking at best that this recruitment target will be realizable, uh, but it also may be a, a ploy on the part of Zeluzhny to put greater pressure on uh, on Zelensky. In terms of the funding, I mean, I'm going to quote uh, what Josip Borrell said several months ago and what the German defense minister, Boris Pistorius, both said within several days of each other. They said that if uh, the, the U.S., uh, if the West stops supporting Ukraine, it will fall tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, that was then. Uh, the Ukrainian military has now sustained a devastating defeat in its counteroffensive. It's incurred far greater casualties than it had at that point in time. Uh, its infrastructure is in a degraded st state relative to what it was at that point in time. So if it was so susceptible to collapse, uh, absent U Western support at that point in time, its demise will happen even faster now. Uh, it, this is this is existential for Ukraine. It needs money. It needs massive amounts of money, not just to buy weapons, pay its soldiers, just to pay, pay it, civil servants, uh, first responders, for example. It can't do that without billions of dollars from the West. So the country, it's it's tragic to watch this happen. Uh, and many of us predicted that it would find in, itself in this place by placing so much faith in Western governments, but it's on the verge of being thrown under the bus and without Western support it will collapse. According to a recent report by Reuters, Germany's economic downturn worsened this month with both manufacturing and services activity contracting, sliding Germany into a recession. Germany's strong manufacturing sector was hit particularly hard in 2022 following Russia's invasion, as it was heavily dependent on cheap gas from Russia. Amidst this economic crisis, the German government is embarking on an austerity program that will cut funds in social, agriculture, transportation sectors, as well as in climate change initiatives. One place where no cuts are being made is in the 100 billion euro special military fund that the German government created in 2022 to counter the alleged threat posed by Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. Any cuts on Ukrainian aid have also been ruled out and instead of funding it from the conventional household budget, it will be financed through this 100 billion dollar special military fund. Earlier this week, Germany also signed a historic agreement to permanently increase its military presence in Lithuania from 850 to 4,800 soldiers. It is, however, unclear how this will be financed, but the announcement was made nevertheless. How do you assess the German government's actions in times of economic recession? Uh, this is terrible for the German people, obviously. And I have to say, Zane, I think this, is, this policy is based upon uh, a view of the world that is completely detached from reality. It is based upon a belief that if Ukraine falls, uh, the Russian government will then target NATO. A NATO country or more than one NATO country. There's absolutely, you know, as John Mearsheimer has said repeatedly, as uh, Jeffrey Sachs, whom you've interviewed on numerous occasions, has said repeatedly, there's absolutely no evidence that Russia intends to attack a NATO country. And if you think about it, this is completely inconsistent with the position taken by the West vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainian membership in NATO. The theory that they've put forward is if Ukraine entered NATO, this would protect Ukraine from attack by Russia. 
But at the same time, they expect us to believe that Russia is prepared to attack other NATO members, such as Poland or Latvian states or Romania, what have you, and Germany. It makes no sense whatsoever. Why would Russia do that? Why would it risk nuclear war when it is the largest country in the world? You know, it has ample resources to sustain its population, as has been demonstrated in spades during this period of intense sanction, sanctioning of Russia. There's no reason for them to do it. There's no statement coming out of the Russian government to suggest it. And it would be suicidal if they attempted such a thing. So the German government is basically sacrificing the needs of the German people, prioritizing the needs of its military for a, a, a view of the world that is completely detached from reality. And if it's any comfort to the German people, our government is doing the same thing over here in Canada. We are increasing military spending while we are being told that social programs and the needs of the people will have to suffer. The, the quote from Christia Freeland is, we have to uh, watch our purse strings. While they're increasing military spending, this is happening throughout the West. It is outrageous and people everywhere should demand that our governments finally begin to prioritize the well-being of ordinary citizens and reduce military spending. Let us switch to Israel's war in Gaza and the developments taking place around it. The U.S. recently announced the deployment of a naval protection force in the southern Red Sea to prevent U Yemeni Houthis from hijacking commercial ships bound for Israel. Other countries taking part are the U.K., Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, the Seychelles and Spain. Arab states such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia decided not to participate. Here's how the leading primetime news network in Germany called the target shot depicted the situation in its December 19th segment. Quote, for weeks, almost daily attacks on freighters and container ships yesterday included even two. The Houthi militias published these pictures at the end of, uh, end of November. They seize a ship and arrest a crew as a clear show of force. They are committed to the goals of the terrorist organization Hamas in Gaza and are therefore increasingly attacking ships that they suspect of having links to Israel. The USA now wants to take actions against this." Unquote. How would you categorize the actions of the Houthis? Does it constitute terrorism as it targets commercial ships? Well, it is a, uh, a prima facie a violation of maritime law, international law, uh, you know, to fire upon commercial ships and certainly not activity that I condone. Um, but uh, let's also look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that commercial, and, and they've been very clear, by the way, they've said repeatedly, and there's no reason not to believe this, uh, to believe this uh, claim that they're making. They're only interested in stopping commercial shipping to Israel. They've said over and over again, we are not trying to impede commercial shipping to other destinations in uh, or, or outside of the Red Sea area. Uh, so they're, they're and, and they've also said that they will stop targeting uh, Israeli affiliated shipping or shipping destined for an Israeli port if the carnage in Gaza stops and there's a permanent ceasefire and the siege is lifted. So this is what they're basically demanding is that Israel comply with international law. That's all. Basic human rights law. And unless and until Israel does that, they are going to do everything within their power uh, to impede commercial shipping. And, and, and let's recall also that even though they have fired upon uh, commercial ships, again, I in no way, shape or form condone this. Uh, as to my knowledge, they haven't killed anybody. Um, so they've been quite restrained in, in their attempts to stop uh, commercial shipping to Israel. Their motivation is pure. Uh, and we in the West should be asking ourselves a question. You know, a lot of people I see in the public discourse here getting worked up about, you know, oh, my God, how can they possibly interfere with commercial shipping in the Red Sea? Do we care more about maritime law than we care about a genocide? Seriously? 
I mean, if we're so concerned about international law and humanitarian law, then why don't we just force Israel to comply with it through sanctions, for example, cutting off the flow of arms to Israel to comply with humanitarian law? And the Houthis have said very clearly that they will then allow commercial shipping to pass unimpeded uh, into and out of the Red Sea. That's the way to solve this problem. And to me, as a Canadian, the most absurd thing is that, uh, you know, finally, finally, the Canadian government supported a UN General Assembly resolution a few days ago calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And uh, of course, Israel has thumbed its nose at this resolution, which was supported by 153 states, uh, was opposed by only 10 states, including the United States and Israel. And uh, what the Canadian government is doing by making itself part of this coalition, this naval coalition, is in effect, it's enabling Israel to continue to flout a UN General Assembly resolution which it, which it supported. This is utterly incoherent. What they should do is demand Israel's compliance with the resolution, and that'll solve the problem in the Red Sea. You talked about uh, the United Nations General Assembly vote. Um, right now, uh, a UN Security Council vote is also being drafted by Arab states to secure aid deliveries to Gaza during, and, uh, during a temporary ceasefire. However, it continues to be being delayed as everything is being undertaken to amend the resolution in such a way as to avoid another U.S. veto. How do you assess this development so far, especially the role the U.S. has played on the international stage? The U.S. is completely scandalized at this stage on the international stage. And, you know, this is at the governmental level, at the level of, you know, uh, ordinary citizens, grassroots. Uh, the U.S., its name is now mud, complete mud. The uh, the notion that the United States stands for human rights and international law uh, is exploded. Uh, it is uh, completely devoid of any credibility in the international stage. And it's remarkable to see, uh, and if I were an American, I would be quite upset about this, that the standing of the United States has been eroded in order to facilitate a genocide. Uh, th this, this, I think, highlights the fact that the U.S. government's policies towards Israel are not in the interests of the American people. They never were. Uh, America has no strategic interest in facilitating a genocide. And to the contrary, and even if it's not a genocide, uh, Zane, which I think it clearly is, as a lawyer, I say that, uh, certainly there have been multiple war crimes committed. Cert I mean, the, the mere fact of, with, uh, of withholding food, water, medicine, and fuel to the civilian population of Gaza, which the Israeli government has openly declared it is doing, uh, is a crime against humanity, whether or not it amounts to a genocide. Uh, and the United States is supporting this. The United States is not only enabling it to happen, they're providing the weapons that are being used to do the killing. Uh, so the United States has destroyed its international standing, and there will be consequences uh, that will reverberate for the United States for decades to come because of this. Uh, I think that the only sensible and sane thing to do at this stage is for the United States to stop being an obstacle. It clearly is doing that. I think this these shenanigans that are going on at the UN Security Council, where everybody's trying to find some formulation that the United States won't veto, I think what the United States really is doing is it is buying time for Israel to kill more people. That's really what's going on here. Uh, and it doesn't want to have to do another veto because, you know, the uproar will even be greater this time. So it's 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 uh, as we Canadians say, dragging the puck and uh, prolonging the negotiations over some formulation which it purportedly won't veto. I think this is disgraceful, and I think a lot of people are seeing through this.
You might have already answered my next question, but I'll pose it anyway for the sake of objectivity. Uh, whenever the US casts a vote, the argument that is usually made and which is widely circulated in the German media is that the UN resolution text that is drafted never condemns Hamas's violence or recognizes Israel's right to self-defense. What do you make of this argument that is invoked whenever the US uh, casts a veto? Well, well first of all, uh, why would you... Uh condemn the violence of Hamas without condemning the far worse violence of the state of Israel. According to Israel's own numbers, okay, the Palestinian militants, and by the way, on October 7th, it wasn't just Hamas that was involved. It was very clear that there were other militant groups. It's also uh, quite clear that uh, Palestinians who weren't officially with any militant group at all broke through the barriers and uh, probably participated in the killing. But let's say all the killing that happened on that day, just for the sake of argument, was Hamas. According to Israel statistics, Hamas killed 36 children. Okay, one or two babies in that number, even though we were told that 40 babies had been beheaded. There's been no evidence that that happened, but they killed, in the worst case scenario, 36 children. Israel has killed, conservatively, in the last two and a half months, in excess of 8,000 children. Uh, according to Euromed Monitor, a European-based uh, human rights organization, the number is now in excess of 10 thousand children. So we are talking here potentially of Israel having killed 300 times as many children as were killed by Hamas. Uh, and we're going to condemn Hamas but not condemn Israel? And would these people support a resolution if in fact that's what we did? If we had language in there which was proportionate to the civilian death toll on either side, it would be even harsher with respect to Israel than it is with respect to Hamas. So this argument is complete nonsense. What the What the General Assembly is trying to do is be balanced and say, we're just going to keep the denunciations out of this altogether. We're not going to condemn Israel. We're not going to condemn Hamas. Let's just get a ceasefire in place and humanitarian aid to this besieged and devastated population. Uh, so uh, I think this is a completely bogus argument, which is being advanced in order to uh, justify a refusal to support uh, you know, a purely humanitarian uh, resolution that any decent-minded person would support. According to the UN, since October 7 in the West Bank, where Hamas is absent and the Palestinian Authority rules, Israeli forces and settlers have killed at least 275 people, including at least 63 children. In response, the US announced a new policy that would ban those Israeli settlers from entering the US who carry out violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Last week, Germany, France and other European nations welcomed this policy and they said they will discuss it soon, but so far no swift, concrete uh, actions have been taken. Do you view this new policy of visa restrictions as a shift in Western policy that still believes in the idea of a two-state solution, or do you think it's merely a lip service? The latter. Uh, so let's uh, consider the following. Uh, first of all, uh, many of the settlers, uh, I don't know the precise number, but a significant portion of them are U.S. citizens. They don't need a visa to enter the United States, so they're not going to be affected by any kind of visa restriction or visa ban. Uh, secondly, this idea that there is such a thing as a moderate uh, settler, this is based on the notion that there are extremist settlers and moderate settlers. Every single adult who lives in those settlements is participating in a war crime. How do I know this? Because in 2004, the International Court of Justice unanimously ruled, even the American judge agreed, that the settlements violate the Fourth Geneva Convention. And throughout that time, uh, Israel has continued to expand them. Not only has it not dismantled them, it's continued to expand them with government funding, with the protection of Israel's military. 
And the people in there over time have become increasingly violent towards the Palestinians and increasingly aggressive in terms of dispossessing them of their land. So I would contest the whole notion that there's such a thing as an adult settler who is moderate. They're all participating in a war crime. And finally, does anybody actually believe that these people, as fanatical as they are, if you're willing to kill a Palestinian to drive them off their land or to deprive them of their land, which they've had in their family for generations, um, does anybody think that these people are going to be deterred from doing that just because they're going to have some trouble getting into the United States? Uh, I doubt that. The real uh, uh, question here is, why is the United States providing weapons to Israel? when it's clear that Israel is using them to violate international law in every conceivable way. Why is the West providing weaponry to Israel? It's not just the United States. Canada continues to allow arms to be sold to Israel. As far as I know, Germany allows arms to be sold to Israel. This is the nub of the problem. And we want to bring an end to this carnage. We should cut off the flow of weapons. That would be a meaningful sanction. Anything less than that is, is complete window dressing, uh, Zane. I want to highlight some of the developments taking place in Germany in regards to Israel and Palestine. In November, the use of the slogan, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, became a criminal offense in Germany, punishable by a prison sentence of up to three years or a fine. However, the statement, Between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israel's sovereignty, which is stated in the founding charter of the Likud party from 1977, the party which the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu currently heads, has not been criminalized by the German government. Furthermore, starting this month, a written declaration of commitment recognizing the right of the state of Israel to exist must be submitted in the eastern federally state of Saxony-Anhalt in order to obtain German citizenship. Commentators and analysts are warning that these moves by the federal and regional governments pose a danger to civil liberties. How do you assess these developments? Well, first of all, the notion that this phrase, uh, which is used routinely by uh, Palestinian solidarity protesters around the world, uh, that it's somehow calling for a genocide of the Jewish-Israeli population is uh, based upon a completely erroneous assumption. And the assumption is that the Palestinian people can't be free unless uh, historic Palestine is cleansed of uh, Jewish persons. Uh, no one that I know in the Palestinian Solidarity Movement has ever made that claim. It is entirely possible for uh, the Jewish population of Israel to remain where it is today uh, and to have uh, the fundamental rights uh, that any democratic society would afford to its citizens and for the Palestinian people to be free between the river and the sea. Both of those things can be true at the same time. How do I know this? Because I live in a country like that, Zane. In this country, there are Palestinians and Jews living side by side in freedom with equal rights. There's no, nothing to stop that from happening other than, you know, people of ill will uh, in historic Palestine. All people are calling for when they use that phrase is for Palestinians to be treated uh, with the same dignity and respect that the Jewish population of Israel is treated. And that can be done in one of two ways. It can be done in a single state uh, with constitutionally protected rights for all citizens, regardless of ethnicity or religion, or it can be done in two states, uh, both viable, both uh, truly independent of each other, but living side by side in peace. Uh, that's all that phrase means. And for the German government and other governments and uh, pro-Israel organizations to claim it's a call for genocide is the height of intellectual dishonesty. And it is a severe assault on our liberties. Absolutely. To my last question, uh, we are currently in a crowdfunding campaign to raise enough funds so that we can continue with our independent and non-profit journalism in 2024. Um, why do you think is, it is important for people to support uh, organizations such as ours um, going forward? Well, if you're, you always have to pay the piper 
Zane, as we say. Uh, in other words, if you are dependent upon a state or you are dependent upon uh, a corporate money, whether through uh, an, an advertising regime or whether through direct donations from corporations, you are going to inevitably, uh, uh, shall we say, modify the content of your reporting in order to remain on the good side of your donors. You have no alternative but to do that. Uh, the, the beauty of independent media is that people uh, such as yourself doing this kind of work are liberated from those constraints and can talk about things that are desperately important to know uh, without fear of retribution from a government or a corporate donor. Uh, I cannot stress enough, I've been saying this for years, uh, I, I myself will never accept, I've never accepted and I will never accept compensation from a for-profit uh, corporation doing you know, so-called journalism or from a government-funded entity. Uh, I cannot stress enough the importance to robust democracy of support for independent media. Dimitri Descars, independent journalist and human, human rights lawyer, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, and I wish you the best for the holiday season. And thank you for tuning in today. If you watched this video until the very end, just take a few more minutes and click on the description of this video below to check out the information to our crowdfunding campaign. If we achieve our target, we will be able to continue providing you with an independent and critical perspective to the developments taking place around the world, which you won't hear in the mainstream media. We don't take any money from corporations or governments, hence, we only depend on you, our viewers, to continue with our independent journalism. So if you're watching our videos regularly, make sure to participate today. Thank you for your support and generosity. I'm your host, Sad Raza. See you next time. True democracy needs an informed public. A public where individuals recognize the value of information. Information that has been put into the right context a context that challenges our convictions and convictions that are not dogmatic, but that we are capable of developing. If we combine these elements, we can revitalize and strengthen one of the most important pillars of our democracy, journalism, the fourth estate, to help find solutions and build bridges rather than divide and marginalize. This is our vision as an independent, non-profit media portal. To ensure that we can remain independent and stay true to our vision, we do not accept any advertising or funding from corporations or governments. Our journalism depends entirely on you, the public, to stay alive. Social change thrives on participation. Become part of the change. If each of our subscribers donates only 3 to 5 euros per month, then together we will be able to create a network that makes a valuable contribution to opinion making. All of these small contributions come together to create something big.